I'm starting a new series today that'll just last through the holidays called God is Love. I want to hopefully give it to you in a different way, in a different understanding. I guess there's a thousand ways we could go when you talk about God being a God of love. Uh, it's probably like a labyrinth of all the things we could talk about from spiritual to physical to emotional. But uh, I'm, I'm going to do it from the, the thought of a manger and, and a baby. And I'm going to try over the next several weeks to dig it out in a way that will challenge you. And I pray that it challenges you. I don't know if you've ever heard it or not. That's not my point to bring something you've never heard before. I'm not here to wow you, but here to inspire you to see it maybe differently than you've ever done before. Thank you, Victoria, for reading the Bible. Here's the scripture she read. This is my thinking as I've been pondering this. Matthew is the only writer that talks about this issue with the wise men. It's such ingrained into the Christmas story that if you have little figurines like Robin put out at our house now, we've got all the little figurines out. There's the three wise men. It's such a religious tradition that we even talk about the three wise men, and yet the Bible never says there's three of them. It's all just conjecture. There could have been 50. We just assume three because gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But, uh, so we say, well, there was probably three of them, but it could have very well been 30 or 40. So already when we jump in the story, we've got the traditions of Christmas and all that just kind of muddies the story that really makes us maybe miss what's going on. And it's, a, it's only given to us by Matthew, which is interesting because it touches something in the first three verses that is so almost opposite of all the rest of the gospel stories about Jesus. Because once Jesus is an adult, at this point in the story, he's a toddler. At this point, history tells us when the wise men showed up, this wasn't his birth, this was about two years later. The wise men show up about two years after his birth to anoint him and to praise him for being king, these magi. The interesting point about this, it's so antithetical almost all the rest of the Gospels. Because as Jesus becomes an adult and we read the stories, the stories that we talk about, it's all the broken people that come to Jesus. It's the, the father with a dead kid. It's the mother with a dying child. It's Jairus' sick daughter. It's blind Bartimaeus. It's a crippled man. It's... It's, it's leprosy, it's diseases. And so even in our thinking, the way we present Jesus is he's here for all you broken people. It was said years ago by a wealthy businessman that Christianity is the crutch of poor people. Uh, meaning if you're wealthy, you don't need him. It's, it's for broken, weak, mi- Jesus is for weak, miserable people. Can't get their lives together. Addicted people, broken, messed up people. That's who Jesus is for. And I don't have a problem with that. I guess it would be very easy to read the Gospels and go, well, here's all these broken people that meet Jesus. And then we present that to you because you're broken and I'm broken. And so it's, it's a very easy way to sell it. If you're hurting, I can sell you. It's how we sell way. If you're fat, I can sell you a skinny shake and get you to drink. Even if it's terrible, you'll drink it because you'd rather be skinny. So even if God is not who God is, he's easy to sell to people that are desperate. 
I just simply got to find a point of desperation and go, well, oh, there's where you're desperate, Ryan, and then I'll connect you to God who will meet that desperation. But this is different. By far it's different. Because at the opening of the chapter, we don't get desperate people. We get very successful people. We get people who've already arrived, people who already have the titles, people who are educated, people who are brilliant, people who have money. We get a king, we get the magis. So we start the story out that the first time we're really going to talk about Jesus before he's an adult and, you know, not quite the Christmas baby in a cradle Jesus, the story is going to introduce people who've already arrived and how they view him. Because there's really no need. What can a two-year-old do for you? Right? What can a two-year-old child do for anybody? If you were broken right now and I said, hang on, Johnny Love's coming to help you. That's my granddaughter. She's two. You'd be like, well, Johnny Love, what, can she, she doesn't have enough money to help me. No, she doesn't have enough money to help you. She doesn't have enough strength to even lift a sofa. No, she couldn't help you move either. She doesn't even have a car to pick me up when I need to pick them. No, she couldn't do that. She can't even call Uber. She can't even get online. She really can't even write a sentence yet. But that two-year-old is going to save you. I mean, that's how weird it is. This story happens around a toddler with several wealthy people who are successful in life and how they view that toddler. But the story was given to me to show that before God could ever do anything for you, He already is who He is. So I have to come to He's God not because of He can fix my brokenness. Because what if I'm not broken? What if I'm wealthy? What if I'm a doctor? What if I'm a millionaire? Elon Musk, why would he ever need Him? Why would any wealthy person ever need God? You have houses, you have lands, you have cars, you can get your own, you can buy your health. You can, why would, I can't sell Jesus to that person. And so Matthew, I guess, knowing that that could be a problem, launches out with several wealthy people who already made it in life. Let's look at them. Here, here's a thought of the day. You're welcome. If you want to hire me... I often offer my skills. I just thought this was funny. I did it myself. You're welcome. It's Mary looking at little baby Jesus and says, you're causing such a ruckus, little fella. And he says, but mom, I'm only two. Right? Here's my thought. Why would a toddler cause such a ruckus? A toddler. A toddler, a two-year-old. Why would a two-year-old threaten a king? Why would a two-year-old make men travel for years to come bring him gifts? There's nothing the two-year-old can bring back. There's nothing the two-year-old can do. There's no, as a two-year-old, if you go back and read it, it literally says, go back to the opening scripture again, the very top scripture. What? There it is. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi came from Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one that's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star and had come to worship him. And when King Herod heard it, here it is in the blue, 
the real challenge, it's the, it's the opening of the story, it's, it's the real crux, it's the climax, it's the core issue of the story, it's the word disturbed. Why would a two-year-old disturb anybody? Except they cry a lot. Get them out of here, they're making too much noise. No, this two-year-old's not even in their 50 feet. There's two-year-old's just in the town. This two-year-old's not bothering. Matter of fact, if he's crying, nobody can hear him. He's in his temple. He's in his nice little palace. The, the threat is, is the two-year-old has been labeled the king of the Jews, and yet Herod is labeled king of the Jews. King Herod in the green, if you want to know a little bit about his backstory, he was a Jew that cut a deal with the Romans so he could rule. So he had religion. He knew religion. He knew the laws of the Jews. He knew about a Messiah that would come, but to uh, pad his pockets, he cut a deal with the Romans so he could sit on the throne and they labeled him the king of the Jews. So you can imagine when all your life as a man, you've been in the Jewish religion, you know the traditions, you can probably say the Torah, you know the Pharisees and all, but you have been labeled, I am the king of the Jews, you've arrived. And then all of a sudden, some little fellas from the east show up and go, hey, we're here to see the king of the Jews, an immediate threat, because that's me. I'm the king of the Jews. And so he becomes disturbed. And the Bible says all Jerusalem gets disturbed. Well, wait a minute. We thought Herod was the king of the Jews. And you're telling us there's another king of the Jews, but this king of the Jews is a two-year-old toddler? So here's what I want to talk to you about. Let's go ahead and run through it. I want to go down to Herod. And then Herod called the Magi secretly. Here's where it gets super interesting. And found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem. Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me that I too, here's where it gets really fun, I can go worship him. And now we see a story unfolding of what God is going to teach us of what we really think worship is. Because this guy is going to light into, I know what's going on, but here's what he does with it. The next verse. When Herod realized he had been outwitted, it's a story that was just read, he's furious and gave order to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance to the time he learned from the Magi. So here he comes and said, all right, I'm the king of the Jews, but you tell me there's a king of the Jews, so I want to go worship. If there's a real king, I want to go worship him. He gets fooled. He said, look, just go kill all the kids. Ain't nobody taking my spot. Nobody's going to take me off my throne. I, now, it really weird. Why would a king be afraid of a two-year-old? By the time the two-year-old gets old enough to defeat the king, what's the deal? So what he says is, I think I'm just going to go kill all the kids and eliminate all the threats because I can't let it threaten what I've worked so hard for. I can't let it threaten where I am. And here's my thinking of Herod, and I'm going to take you somewhere today with this. Herod's worship, when he said, I want to worship, was nothing more than weak-willed emotionalism fueled by words of religious piety. He was never going to change. He never intended to change. 
He just knew how to say all the right words. But my God, my life is not going to be threatened or different because of this dude, Jesus. And I present to you, it's where we are today in American Christianity. It's nothing more than emotionalism fueled by religious piety. We know how to take our hats off. We know how not to curse around the preacher. We know how to make sure I look over my shoulder. I can say hallelujah. I can say amen. But really, I mean, I call that my worship. I go to church. I give God $5. I mean, I just ate out of a bread bowl with some of the breast button. And I dipped that in the bread. But really, you know you're not going to change. You know you're not. You know you're not going to be any different tomorrow than you've been the last 20 years because you're used to you. And you like you and you've worked hard for you and you've slaved for you and you work your job and you have your money. You know you're not going to change. He's nothing more than a religious ideology in your pocket to feel better about yourself. Because the real Jesus is a threat to my identity. It calls me to die to me and my own emotions and my own feelings and my own agendas and my own gossip and my own addictions and all, everything that plagues me as a human being. I want to teach you why this is a big problem. Let's flip the script though. Here come the others. The Magi heard the king. They went on their way and they saw the star and they went ahead of them and they went until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Next verse. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down. Here it is in the green. Uh, again, a set of wealthy fellas, a set of people that have already arrived in life. And they worshipped him. But a far cry different worship. Because it wasn't that they killed everybody that was a threat, that they opened their treasures and lavish gifts on him. Both of them, Herod and the Magi, worshipped him. One was a false, emotional, he threatens me, I'm never going to change, but I'm going to call it worship and fake it. And the other one was a genuine reverence for who he was. And here's their worship. The Magi's worship was reverence of God's wisdom displayed by lavish gifts. They didn't kill anybody, they, they, they gave of themselves. I don't know how long they worked for what they gave and how much it was worth. I heard a historian say one time that they gave Jesus so much gifts with the gold, frankincense, and myrrh that his mother, his father, and his entire ministry would be funded as long as he was on earth because that's how much was given to him this day. That before he ever started, before Judas ever kept the bag, before there was ever money, his, his mother already had a treasury of gold given while he was a two-year-old, this, this is what that tells me, because God is already so far ahead of you making a way of the things you don't even know God's going to make a way for. Because we never see Jesus taking up offerings. Anybody ever see him taking up an offering? You don't ever see him, boys, pass the plate. We got to have some funds here. Anybody here give me $100? I'll give you this hanky right out of the baptism. He never did that. I believe it's because when he's two years old, his father came and funded his ministry before his ministry ever began. That's how God is so far ahead of us. Here's where it gets even more interesting, though. 
because who really cares about Magi and Herod? They lived 2,000 years ago, and it's a story in the Bible. I want to talk to people alive in 2022. And what I've come is that there's a clear distinction between fake and genuine worship. And I can spot it a mile off and smell it like it's a dead rat in my garage. And you can't fake it. I've been around too long. And spot you a mile away. And the reason I know that is not because I'm judgmental. It's because I smelt that way one time. And I know what that smell is. It was me. So sometimes I'll see people walk by and go, oh, there goes me. So I'm not being judgmental. I, I think you've been here long enough to know I have my own little sweet issues. But I know this. You show me somebody who says they worship Jesus, but yet they so need to be in control of their life, it's fake worship. You cannot worship him and be in control of your life at the same time. Impossible. You get to choose. You get to choose whether you want to worry and fear and fret and figure your life out. Who am I going to marry? Where am I going to go? Will I get sick? COVID, all the fears, all the anxieties of life, everything that's on me. What am I going to do? How am I? Those kind of people don't understand who they are in Christ. It is a life of fake. I, I say fake. That is such a dirty word. It is true. It's just fake. It's, well, let's pray over our food. Now, we don't, and everybody probably did this yesterday, on Thursday. All right, everybody, hey, 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 hey. We're going to pray. Before we kill this thing, we're going to pray. Now, everybody's been outside smoking weed, drinking. We're going to pray now. Half lit, half of them mad at each other, gossiping about each other. Over there snapping things that they don't need to be snapping, but it's time to pray. Snaps go. We kind of steady ourselves from the moonshine a little bit. Like, it's been a rough day. We're going to pray, though. Go ahead and bless. And, and if I'm in the room, that's how it is. Bless it, preacher. Oh, God, okay. God bless it. Help it, right? Come on, we all have been there. And in some weird way... I, I almost said a dirty word. Gosh, I need to reel that in. Ah. In some weird way, we're just jerks, mean, rude, snotty, arrogant people all year and then feel like because we say a prayer before we eat, we're religious. And, and it's like God's just watching me. Man, that Mark, he's such a jerk sometimes. He's... Rude to his wife, he's insensitive, he looks at half-naked pictures, he's addicted to porn, he gets kind of, he doesn't get drunk, he, he's buzzing a lot, man, he's buzzing, he's too spiritual to get drunk, and he, he's too spiritual to look at hardcore porn, it's just yoga pictures, he's just, I'm just so proud of him, I just, uh, and, and like, I'm just frustrating to God because I get mad on 285. I give people the middle finger when they frustrate me. I'll cut you out behind your back, but I'll pray for you in public. You just make me, God, I just I ride down the road. I'm just bubbling. I'm just angry all the time. I'm slamming doors, kicking the dogs, screaming at the kids. And God's watching this. And then all of a sudden on Thanksgiving Day, all right, now we're going to pray. 
And God's like, dude. Man, that's it, Mark. That, you praying over that turkey, dude. That canceled everything. That praying over that turkey and giblet gravy, dude, you canceled every bit of your jerkiness. All you, that's how we think. That because you took your hat off at Monterey to pray over the enchilada, that that respects God? When you're a jerk all year long? So the question is, you want to know if you're fake or not, just see who's in control of your life. And if you want to know who's in control, you don't want to ask anybody. You just want to self-identify. Figure out how much your emotions charge you up. And if your emotions often get the best of you, then you are in control of you. Come on. I'm not saying you're going to hell. That would be terrible. I went to hell because I lost it on 285. Now I try to share with you my most transparency of transparent of humanity. Why God lets me stand up here and preach and he doesn't kill me, I don't know. I just love him. I just, a little bit of my week, I got a fever on Sunday night, last Sunday night. I had a fever all week to about Thursday. Fever broke on Thursday. Tired, weak. Woke up Friday week. Woke up yesterday week. Mm, come on, somebody better watch football. <laughs> I wasn't going to come today. I thought I was just going to lay in bed. I'm not feverish. You don't, you don't have to stay away. I'm fine now. But just weak in my body. And uh, I thought, no. I'm going to get up because I'd rather talk to you about Jesus than lay in bed and think about it. So, what, what day was it? It was Wednesday. We're going to celebrate Stella's birthday. She's 17. And we're going to meet at Farmburger. I, I did not want to go. I didn't feel good. But that doesn't matter when you're married. And you know that's true because when you say, honey, I don't think I'm going to farm her. I just don't feel good. And she just goes. <laughs> Doesn't say a word. Just come on, fellas. Y'all ever had to? And then I, I just said, I, I answered. She didn't even ask a question. It was just, and I answered that. That's how dumb I am. No question, but I answered it. I'm like, okay, I'm going. I'm going. That's literally what I told her. So, and she just nodded like, yeah, you're going. It's your daughter and she's 17, you're going. She didn't say that, but I felt it. I felt all of that shooting out. There were daggers coming off of just, it was like Star Wars all around me. Never said a word though. That's the power of a woman. They never have to say anything and you're dodging bullets. You're like, hey, hey, throwing energy like, oh gosh. So I got in my truck and I said, I'll meet y'all there. Because I didn't feel like riding with a bunch of women. So I just, I just don't feel good. Y'all all go. I'll meet you at Farmburger. So I text into my phone, Farmburger, and I'm leaving the church. I came into work to get this together. And I was driving down to a, to 20 to 75, and I was, my, my little screen tells me where to go. It's like a woman. She's right there. It's just where you're going to go. And I, but I'm on the phone with a friend. I was talking to another pastor. We're chatting. And my little 
Siri's going, turn here, turn here, exit here. And I missed it. Just missed it. Well, when I missed it, I immediately felt I wasn't even saved anymore. <laughs> I felt like I don't want to be in Atlanta traffic. I don't. I love my children, but not a lot today. <laughs> I, I want to go home. I don't want to eat a burger. I don't feel well. And so I'm already tense. So I just tell my pastor, I say, hey, buddy, I got to go. I, I got to get everything. I've lost my thing. And so then she starts going rerouting, rerouting, re which is fine if you're in Villa Rica. But when you're in the middle, middle of downtown Atlanta, connector 7585, eight lanes of traffic running, everybody's dodging and honking at me, and I'm trying to put it back in, rerouting, rerouting. So I reroute. Well, when I reroute, I go all the way back through the city, back around, loop back, and it puts me right back where I was. <laughs> now, I don't know. I, I think I'm more spiritual at times, and then things like this happen. I realize I'm not, and I think I read my Bible every day, but it doesn't seem to matter. So as soon as, I must be honest with you, as soon as I realized she rerouted, I was good, I was following orders, I, I missed the reroute of reroutes, and now I'm back right where I was. And so I said, Lord God, Jesus Almighty. That, like that. That's exactly how it came out. There was nothing, there was nothing peaceful in me. I, I just, the best cuss word I could come up with was, Lord God, Jesus Almighty. And I was mad. I would have killed somebody at that moment. And I'm sweet. I'm the sweetest tender I was gripping my steering wheel like this. Cars are hank, hank, and I'm got to shut up. I'm lost. But nobody cares. Nobody. I'm frustrated. So I finally just go, all right. I, I, I just took my phone. I unplugged it from the thing. It blanks on the screen. And now I'm like, oh, I don't even know where I'm going. So I got off the next set and I got to the red light. I start scrolling. I put back in where I'm going to go. I hit go, and it goes turn right, and I turn right, and as soon as I turn right, woo, woo. Ow, ow, I don't like my wife. It's her fault. I knew by the Holy Ghost I shouldn't have come, and I let her talk me into it. And so, woo, 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 in downtown Atlanta. Downtown Atlanta, I get pulled over by a motorcycle cop. I have not been pulled over by a policeman since I was four. Four years old. I've never had a ticket. I'm just like, oh, Lord. Now my heart's racing. I'm palpitating. I'm late. Now she starts texting me. Where are you? I'm like, stop by a police officer. Send. Like a $250 ticket. Ah! <laughs> See that word in blue? That word in blue. When you lose control, you will find out who the God of your life is real quick. Now, I'm not, I don't know. I'm just picturing Jesus is with me. Lord God Almighty, Jesus. And he just says, okay, watch this. I think when that cop pulled me over, Jesus was like, you're going to talk about me, boy. You want to go ahead and use my name wrongly? All right, I'll show you. I don't know. 
But I think he might have laughed a little bit because, go back one. I think he might have laughed a little bit because I found out that sometimes true worship is identified best when we're losing control. Who Jesus is is determined best when you start losing control. That might be divorce papers in your hand. It might be the doctor telling you you've lost a kid. It might be the doctor telling you have cancer. But you better know when fear and anxiety grips you, how can I afford this? How will I do this? How will I make it through this? At that moment when you feel like you're losing control, it is a moment that will test what your worship really is. And man, when it touches you, it touches deep. Because the one thing this story teaches us, as I said at the beginning, is that the real root problem of all of us is not brokenness. It's the obsession to control it all. Because when we're in control, we're at peace. But when we're not in control and things are chaotic, oh, the addiction start, the habit start, the alcohol starts, the screaming starts, the frustrations, the slamming doors, the threats, the anxieties, the sleepless nights, the laying in bed going, can I afford this? Can I do it? Looking at everybody else going, well, they, this happened to them. What if it happens to me? Looking at COVID, everybody's dying. Looking at money's going up and inflation's going up and gas is triple, quadruple. Can I make it? Will I do it? I feel like I'm losing control. My money's going. I, I can't, I, man, food. I went to the, the Publix the other day and $98 for like three items. I'm like, my God, I'm going to have to go get a cat. It's a whole story in itself. I'll leave it alone. <laughs> but in one moment in downtown Atlanta, when my life was out of control and my emotions kicked in and my frustrations got the best of me, you better know at that moment it's where true worship really resides. And nobody can fake this. It's why I said I can smell it a mile away because you can spot somebody's life that is chaotic. Chaos. Here's the two put together and then I want to leave you with some hope. King Herod's worship is religious emotionalism driven by a fear of what life may bring resulting in an insatiable desire to control it. King Herod showed up in my truck that day insatiable desire to control everything, traffic, my emotions, my everything. And if it's true, I think a lot of that blue, the fear of life, the what's going to happen to me, will I die, will I get Alzheimer's when I get old, well, what if I lose my mind when I get older, what if my kids, what if they start driving, what if they get in a car wreck, what if I lose my baby in the womb, well, what if I can't afford this, what if we bought a house and now we can't do it, what if we're going to lose our house, what if I lose my job, what if I get fired, what if my boyfriend leaves me, what if my girlfriend ditches me, what if my husband cheats on me, what life can do to us is a hellhole. Life can do you dirty. 
And because we know this, because we know we can get stabbed in the back, we know people can talk about us, we know it can go south quickly, there becomes an insatiable desire to control it all. When Monica died, uh, I was in my 20s when Monica, my wife, died. I got married very young, and we were married four and a half years when she died. And we buried her, and I moved to Tulsa. That's where I met Robin, and Robin married me. We, we became a husband and wife together, started our journey. But I had an insatiable desire to control her. Not because I was a chauvinistic man, I was a fearful man. I needed to know every time she got in a car. I needed her to tell me. If she told me she would be home at 5, I needed her to be home at 5, not 5.05. Because I'm freaking out. I, what if you're dead? What if she's in a ditch? What if? What if they don't call? What if? And then, then you're controlling everything out of fear. Well, hey, make sure. Don't go tonight. It's raining. Don't. I don't want you to hide your plane. You can hide your plane. Don't. Hey, watch out for other drivers. They're drunk drivers. Don't go now. De definitely don't drive today. There's too many drunk people on the road. Just obsessed with fear. Trying to control it all. And then your birth, your first child, your second child, and you have this insatiable fear to control it all. Oh my God, I gotta go check on them. Okay, they're awake. Oh my God, I don't want them to choke. Oh my God, what if they get SIDS? Oh my God, what if crib death? Oh my God, and then they start growing up. Oh my God, what if somebody kidnaps them? Oh my God, what if they wreck? Oh my God, what if they fall off the playground monkey bars? Oh my God, she's in gymnastics. What if she breaks a neck? What if she breaks an elbow? What if she breaks a leg? Oh my God, they're driving. Oh my God, driving in Atlanta. Oh Jesus, driving in Atlanta. What if they die? Do you know how many car wrecks? Insatiable desire to control it. Driving yourself insane. Every month you're looking at the checkbook, driving yourself insane, working harder, making more, getting more, shooting for retirement, trying to juggle 52,000 things to keep your insatiable fear of life under control. Drinking and carousing and addictions and whatever you can do to keep it under control. Just keep working. Just stay busy. If I stay busy long enough, an insatiable desire to control it. But the Magi, here's their worship. And man, this is a sweet place to become. And I want to teach you how to get here. It's where you relinquish life treasures because you've settled. Whew, that the one you worship is the one who controls it. Oh, come on. There's no greater peace than to realize the one I worship watches over my daughters. The one I worship watches over my wife. The one I worship watches over my grandbabies. The one I worship watches over my health. The one I worship watches over my money. The one I worship watches over my future. The one I worship watches over my retirement. The one I worship watches every step that I take. Hallelujah! I have come to the place that the one I worship controls everything about my life. Oh, I wasn't there. That woman right there did not marry that boy. She molded me. To become this fella. But I saw that I was changing when she came home and said, I, I have been given a diagnosis of cancer. Oh, Herod worship wants to come. I want to control everything. I want to get in control. What do you mean cancer? How did you get cancer? Oh my God, what are we going to do? Oh, what are we, oh God, we'll never afford it. What are we going to do? It's going to be two or three hundred thousand dollars. Oh God, we don't even have good insurance. What are we going to do? 
oh God, what are we going to do? And then we find out chemo. God, no, not chemo. We didn't want chemo. We were going to do it without chemo. And then 22 pages of what chemo will do to her. It'll just ruin her. It'll take her body. It'll ruin everything about her. Look at all the side effects. She could get 42 other diseases from all these problems. Oh God, oh God. An insatiable desire to control it. But thank the Lord. I had grown enough. I'm not saying I've arrived. But I grew enough to know that this old boy sweating that old girl is not where I want to be. This old boy knows that that God has her in his hands. And he that I worship is the one that controls the one that I married. And the one that I worship oversees the life of the one that I married. And the one that I worship oversees the future of the one that I married. So all I had to do is go to the one I worship and go, Hey, I just want you to know, I totally trust you. And we went through the whole thing unscathed. Oh, I did not get there overnight. But I ask you this question. Are you at the place where the one you worship is the one who controls it? So that you can just lavish your life to Him and go, God, man, I'm sick of worrying over my kids, my health, my future, my money, my job, everything, my mind. Will I lose my mind? Will I lose my health? Will I get Alzheimer's like my parents? Will I get a cancer like my mother? Will I, will that, will I, by la, by la. Or will I come to the place like the Magi to a two-year-old toddler to say, hey, the one that controls the world is right there and he's two years old and he can do nothing for me right now, but I lavish him with my gifts. Because in the story, it is an issue of control. Herod needed to control his life so he kills everything around him because Jesus is a threat to him. The Magi gave up their life because he was not a threat. He was the one that controlled life. I present to you today that many Christians worship in a way that is very fake because they've never relinquished control. They just simply need him for luck. They need him for crisis moments. They need him when everything falls apart but my God, I still need to be in control. I want to teach you how I did it, and I hope it inspires you. Here it is. It's just several scriptures in one passage of Romans 8. I told um, Saturday, I was eating with my daughter and my mother, and I said, I was putting this together, and I know it's going to be good because I cried when I was putting it together. And I wasn't crying over the thoughts I put together. I was crying over the Bible verses I was putting into this presentation. I'm just going to read them to you. So what do you think, Mark? I'm just going to personalize it to me. If God's on your side like this, how can you lose, boy? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for you, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son... Is there anything else he would not gladly and freely do? Oh, come on, he killed his own son. Would he not take care of you, Mark? He put his own kid to death for you. I kept reading, it got worse. 
And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Oh, come on, I may have had a bad day in Atlanta that day, but I'm God's kid. I'm going to have favor on every turn of my life. Who would dare even point a finger? The one, there's that toddler, the one who died for us, who was raised alive for us, is in the presence of God. This very moment, Ryan Holdman, sticking up for you. Levinson, sticking up for you. Leslie, sticking up for you. Sam, sticking up for you. Chad, sticking up for you. The son of the living God. He's not up there biting his nails. What am I going to do? The world has just got so bad. According to what I read, the son of the living God, Jesus Christ, I just took communion to say I believe in him. According to this verse, right now he's standing by daddy and he says, daddy, yes, son, I want to talk to you a little bit about Rosa. What? Yeah, I just want to stick up for Rosa, Lord. God is sticking up for you. Jesus is sticking. I can't ever get him to answer my prayer. He's already talking to God about you. He's praying for you right now. Why do you want to control your life? Why do you want to be frustrated and fearful, depressed and anxious and nervous, biting your nails, Googling every way to get out of your problem? The Son of the Almighty God is alive right now and He's sticking up for you. He's interceding for you. He's talking about you right now. You may have forgotten about Him for a week, but He's talking to God about you. Oh, it gets better. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us, Mark? Between Christ's love? There's no way I put all this in pink since I live with all women. Not Trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sin ever. Not, 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 but cancer, no. How about Alzheimer's? No. How about going broke? No. How about my kid getting in a wreck? No. Nothing. But then I look around and I see statistics. I see other people's whose children and other people. And now I start evaluating my life against what they've experienced. And I go, well, it could be true because they, their child, their marriage, their health, they're this. And they're all Christians and they, 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 they. And rather than judging my life based on him, I judge my life based on everybody else's days. And I get anxious again. Well, if it's true, then they. And if it was true, then them. And if it was true, then them. And Versus, here's the weird thought. It's true whether anybody in this room experiences or not. It's true because of who he is. And the goal is to believe it. And yet it's hard to believe when you see statistically it doesn't seem so true all the time. Who's going to do it, Mark? Here's the final verse. Oh man, if I could get here. Man, if I could get here. I try. Do I ever try? Oh, oh, to be at the place where nothing phases me. Oh, what kind of worship that must be. To know Him so much, nothing phases me. Oh, God, I want to get there. I want to get there. I, I would love to tell you I'm there, but I'm not. I want to be there. 
I want to get to the place where I know him so great. Nothing, nothing phases me. Nothing phases me. I still get phased. I have to shake myself sometimes. I have to go oh, get out of that. I got to get out. I get phased and I shake myself back. I want to get to that sweet, sweet spirit in this place where nothing Oh man, can you imagine what that must be like to live on planet earth and to be able to say nothing phases me? Oh no, it's not arrogant. It's not some self-righteous, bigoted comment. It is a place that all of us can get to where nothing phases me. Nothing phases me. My boyfriend broke up with me. Oh man, God's in control. I'm going to get a better one. Oh, but he was the love of my life. I know, but there's something better coming down the pipe, honey. Nothing phases me. I don't know where you are, but that would just be a great goal to press toward. This is not about heaven or hell. It's about life here on earth. What a great place to be. And ask this question to yourself. Are you phased easily? I would probably say like me, most of us in the room would nod our hand going, oh, yeah, I'm pretty phased. Unless you're like Burl and you're old. It's usually old people that don't get phased. They've already earned the scars. They've already been threatened by life a million times. And they'll just say things like, Honey, there ain't no need to worry. I'm like, you're 94. <laughs> but I wanted to start this series off by asking this question. Does life phase you? And if you're constantly phased by life, check your worship of who He is to you. Because Blue, I'm absolutely convinced. Oh man, Mark. I, I didn't make a hundred on that test, but I, I tried to get a 70. Absolutely convinced. Absolutely convinced. I mean, I'm convinced, but absolutely convinced that nothing... Nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic. This is where I started crying. Today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable. And oh, I, my mind can think a lot of things. Absolutely nothing. I put it in red because that's where tears started coming out of my eyes. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Chim chimney, chim chimney. Absolutely nothing can get between me, come on, somebody, and God's love. Because he's embraced me. So when I start out with, I want to talk about God's love. I simply want to say this. I want you to think about a toddler that is so powerful, nothing in life should faze you. That is the love of God. When you say God loves you, then you should be able to answer, and that's why I'm not faced by anything. Because if you're faced by something, then do you really believe he loves you? Because if you're faced by it, he must not love me. He must reject me. He must be ignoring me. He must not be paying attention to me. He must be doing something dirty to me to get my, yeah. Here's the conclusion. I had to think this through. I want to get here. I, I, I try. I'm absolutely convinced that absolutely nothing can separate me from the absolute love of God. Bow your heads and let me pray for you.
There is no communion now. We've done it. It's just you and him. I need you to walk out the door honest. Are you phased easily by life? Are you tripped up really easily? Frustrated easily? Depressed, anxious easily? Fearful easy? Are you laying in bed with your mind doing a thousand flips? Constantly trying to dig yourself out of a hole of anxiety and fear? Trepidations and worries? You believe the light if you just keep yourself busy enough it'll all go away. I leave you with the thought if you want to know the genuineness of his love and how you respond to it simply ask yourself to what level does life phase me? And in that you will determine where he sits in your life whether at the top of the rung or somewhere beneath. For when we are phased by life we lose sight of his love for us. He loves you. And according to what I just read, nothing, nothing, and nothing, and nothing can ruin your life, take your life, destroy your life, because he's the one in control. Trust him. Stand with me if you would.